Before we begin today's episode with Michael Winkler, we have a very special announcement. As of today, the 24th of September, submissions are open for the Grimshot Story Prize. To enter, go to danmurphys.com.au and submit your story as a review. Once it is live, send a screenshot or link of your entry to beyondthezeropod at gmail.com or tweet them to us at beyondzeropod. Michael and our judging panel will shortlist 10 stories to read on a special episode of the show, and the winner will receive a signed copy of Grimish. Entries will close on October 22nd, and stories must be under 1,000 characters. More details in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Michael Winkler. Michael is a prize-winning author. His most recent book is Grimish. He joins us from his home in Melbourne. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks very much for having me, Ben. Let's start with Grimish. For those who haven't read it, could you give us a little overview and tell us about Joe Grimm and how you stumbled upon that story? I am not entirely sure when I first heard about Joe Grimm. I think it was as a child. Um, I would have read um, a couple of lines about him somewhere in some um, some sporting book out of the library when I was a kid. and. Uh, and it always stuck with me that the idea of, uh, well, Joe Grimm uh, was uh, an Italian-American boxer who uh, found fame as the uh, the boxer who could uh, absorb the most punishment of any uh, anyone in the history of, of that sport. And so he ended up devising um, almost a contest within the contest. So uh, when he would enter into boxing matches, no one ever thought that he would win. That was irrelevant. The question was, uh, could anyone knock him out? And so progressively uh, better and better boxers uh, took him on, took on the challenge, and no one did manage to knock him out. But of course, um, while that happened, he was sustaining uh, enormous physical damage. Um, And then I realised that in 1908, he came to Australia. He spent 18 months in Australia, and I was intrigued to imagine what it would be like being um, someone, uh, an outsider, I suppose, uh, being in the fairly closed society of Australia at that time, and uh, what happened to him while he was here. He didn't win many fights, did he? He didn't. Um, originally, when he was a, a legitimate boxer, if you like, he, he won a few. He, he won a handful. And in fact, um, uh, through his career, there were very, very occasional victories uh, dotted in there. But um, yes, the, the contest for him was to try to survive the allocated duration of the fight. It's such an interesting story. And you kind of follow him uh, around his travels through Australia. You even go across the Nullarbor and head over to Perth. How did you do your research into into his story as he was here? Originally, I thought it might be a a pretty straight non-fiction book. Um, uh, And then I started looking around and I spent a lot of time on Trove and I found every scrap of uh, information that I could, every mention of him. 
Um, I uh, looked into the medical records of the, uh, the Claremont Asylum, where he was held uh, as an involuntary inmate for a while um, and got his medical records. And then I realised that I'd found as much as could be found. And there were still huge gaps uh, in the narrative. And so that's what I had to then fill in with other things. It's funny you said Trove because as soon as I picked up your book after about 10 or so pages, that's exactly straight where I went to and I was pulling up the same articles you were. And for our overseas listeners, this is a, an archive of newspapers from 1840s, I think it is, in Australia, and it pretty much backs up every newspaper that existed and you can look up anything on there. It's a free website. It's fantastic. It's an extraordinary resource that they're actually defunding, which is, um, you know, cultural vandalism. Yeah, it's, if, they, if they get rid of that, it's going to be a very sad day for the country, I think. Uh, one of the techniques you use is to have the writer hearing the story of Joe Grimm from Uncle Michael, who's a very old man who may or may not be his uncle, and he drinks copious amounts of sherry. He's your classic unreliable narrator, and it allows you to blend the fact and fiction in a really interesting way. Could you tell us a bit more about your approach to writing it in this way? Uh, I've always been attracted to the idea of unreliable uh, narrators. I think that um, uh, the idea of the sort of uh, omniscient author is um, is, is bunkum, and I'd, I like to, to try to undermine that. Um, with this book, when I realised that there wasn't enough for a, a conventional non-fiction book about Grimm, um, I then realised that I could probably um, uh, meld it with uh, other research that, and thinking I'd been doing about the topic of pain. Uh, but you, you've got pain and you've got a man who got punched in the face repeatedly for, for a living, and I had to find some way to, to make that sort of palatable or enjoyable or uh, some way to, to get a reader into that story. Um, and at the same time, I, I wanted to un underline my own unreliability, I suppose. Um, and um, I'm making up uh, or I'm hypothesising about who Grimm actually was. Uh, and I thought if I'm going to do that to him, I should at least try to be honest enough to uh, try to analyse who I am and why I might be writing this story in this way. One of the really fun things you do at the beginning is you, you basically give yourself a review at the beginning, don't you? Yeah, the book begins with, with a book review. And I've been surprised how many people have asked me if, if that book review is legit. Um, I have not realised that actually, no, I, I, I wrote the review. Um, the review undermines the book to come, I suppose, but it also hopefully explains the book to come. And while it pinpoints some of the shortcomings in, in the book, it also, uh, it, it probably preempts them as, as well. <laughs> so it could be a self-protective device, but it's also supposed to be fun, yeah. One of the things that I noticed reading it and then in your footnotes it comes up as well is the fact that Grimm goes from being Grimm with one M to Grimm with two Ms and goes back and forth between the two. And I found that a really entertaining way of, of showing that your story may or may not be true in parts. That's right. And you, you mentioned how the, the, the main uh, informant is 
my uncle Michael, who might not be my uncle, and just occasionally um, it sort of bleeds through where there's a little bit of confusion and, and you're not certain who's talking, whether it's the narrator who's talking or the, or the author who's talking, and, and that's, um, that's, that's deliberate also. I mean, it, it, it's all it's all sort of like roller skating on an ice rink. It's um, it's it's all movable, and I mean that's what a, a lot of history is, I suppose. Um, and a lot of people are. It's, it's difficult to to pin things down. Did you have a model for Uncle Michael? <laughs> um, uh, not exactly. I, I, I do have an uncle who's an actual uncle, uh, who's not particularly old and is a great raconteur. Um, but, uh, otherwise it was, yeah, it was, it was some sort of figure of someone very, very ancient. I, um, he, he, he lives as you'd be aware, uh, in this, this sea of paper. So books and journals and, correspondence and, and everything that is um that he's sort of sinking under and you've got to clamber over um and there was a, a visual uh uh cue for that which was a bookshop that i once walked into in southern wales and i can't even remember the name of the town it might be trendy or something like that uh and I actually felt completely claustrophobic <laughs> entering this shop because I, um, everything was teetering and there's just, yeah, books and paper. It was almost physically impossible to, to move in and out of, of the shop. Um, so I guess that's where that, that image came from. For our listeners outside Australia, could you give us a brief review of McWilliams Royal Reserve? <laughs> it's a, a uniquely rough and awful um, and cheap uh sherry that that came in flagons i don't know if if uh, if the flagon is a uh is is a measure that's used in a lot of places around the world but i think is it roughly two liters or something like that it's oh, i think so yeah i looked i looked it up this morning because i think we might make them official sponsors for this week's episode <laughs> But I think for about two litres, it's about $9.30 at Dan Murphy's. No, a bargain at half the price. <laughs> and I think it's about 18% as well. There, there we are. I mean, you know, that's a very, very cheap way to get blotto. <laughs> um, with this book, you've decided to self-publish, which I think is a really courageous way to put this out there. How did you come to that decision? Um, it's, uh, it's necessity and mother of invention territory. So I have uh, a wonderful agent, uh, Martin Shaw, who hawked the book around to every credible publisher. So, um, every publisher that was likely to take a punt on, uh, a book like this. And over the course of about a year, everyone said no. Um, and uh, some of them were reluctant no's and some were forceful no's. Um, but there wasn't a, a, a flicker or a glimmer of interest. And then I thought, oh, what do I do? Um, and if you're middle class and reasonably wealthy like me, um, the point of entry to publication is, is fairly low. Um, so I was uh, lucky enough to engage the best cover designer in Australia, Peter Long, and then, um, you know, printing cost about $2,500. And um, I didn't really 
then expected to recoup that money. Um, but yeah, on the one hand, it's a lot of money. On another hand, um, you're very fortunate if you can afford to, to, to pay that amount of money, you can produce a book. The, the trick then, of course, is always distribution and getting people interested. And that's where I've been incredibly fortunate that some uh, really thoughtful readers have engaged with it and, in fact, have, have championed it. Um, Bram Presser, who uh, I know has been a previous guest on uh, this podcast, he said on Twitter, what did he say? He said that he's simultaneously astonished that this book could not find a publisher and uh, completely uh, understanding why this book could not find a publisher. So, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough sell uh, as a commercial proposition. Um, it's, uh, but the advantage of self-publishing is that uh, it could be as, it could be exactly the book that I, I wanted it to be without, without uh, making compromises. Um, uh, the, the, the disadvantage always is trying to connect with readers and, and actually get the book physically out there. I noticed that um, probably the easiest way for most people to get it is buying the Kindle or e-version at the moment, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, available all around the world, which is the advantage of... Uh, of the e-versions, um, the, the physical book is only available in Australia, but of course can be can be posted anywhere. Um, I mean, I, I might mention Twitter, which is well, I think where where you and I might have have connected. Um, uh, someone like Emmett Stinson, who I know is um, a, a friend of yours, who I've never met, uh, championed the book. From, he was one of the very first readers and one of the very first people to mention it on Twitter. In fact, later on, he um, gave it an extremely generous uh, and thoughtful review for Overland. And having a voice like that um, uh, recommend the book or, or talk about um, the, the book as being something that might be worth, uh, worth reading and worth giving a try is... Um, is an amazing thing in in this this modern world that all of a sudden um, people who um, have connected with him because they they share an interest in perhaps experimental literature or, or just just books generally. Um, so there's yeah been a little bit of interest from different places around the world. It's funny because when I was reading it, it kind of reminded me of one of my favourite books from the year, which was uh, Joshua Collins and Netanyahu's. Have you read that one? I have not. It's roughly, in a way, there's a lot of similarities with the telling of a story about the Netanyahu family who go over to visit a uh, New York university and the trip doesn't end up going terribly well. And so Joshua Cohen has to, I guess, fictionalise the parts of those that encounter that he doesn't know. And it, it has quite a few similarities in a lot of really good ways with your book. I will certainly look out for it. I, I think. Been that I guess I think the books can do more than they than they often do. That there is this sort of flattening with the the conventional novel, and I, I just I think that you can pitchfork a lot more in, and um, I think readers are much more capable of going with you than than some writers think they are. That that books can be more. 
dangerous, can be more um, scatty, can be more, um, you know, all over the place. And that might be a, a rewarding thing. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're talking with Michael Winkler. This episode is brought to you by the new Toyota iSlam, with room for the whole militia and still space for a rocket launcher in the back. Available now at Kabul Toyota. We're back on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Michael Winkler. All right, let's move on to you as a reader. Was there a gateway book for you that opened the world of literature? So I grew up in little country towns and my family didn't have uh, a television. And obviously this was in the era pre-internet. So um, the library was my, um, the library, the, the daily newspaper also, uh, but otherwise the, the little country town libraries were my portal into the world. So I was a reader all my life, all through my childhood. Um, when you mentioned gateway books, I, I actually, I, physic, I, I can remember the physical sensation of standing there in my country town library and suddenly realising, looking across from the children's books where I'd always dwelled, looking at all the other books and realising that I was ready for them and the, that sense of excitement of this, you know, that the library was suddenly 10 times bigger for me. Um, on the one hand, the, the books that sort of took me across that reading divide from children to adult were um, the Agatha Christie books. There was always millions of them in every country library and the bony books by Arthur Upfield, which are um, problematic, but uh, I would have read 15 or 20 of them. Our next door neighbour had the complete set. Um, but the book that I chose as the gateway book uh, was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance <laughs> by Robert Persig. And the reason it's my, my gateway book, I, I, was, I read it when I was 13, and 13 is a funny, pivotal moment, I think. Um, and I didn't know what I was reading, but uh, I, I wanted to keep reading it, and I, and I reread it a, a few times, and it was this sense of there being a much bigger world out there that I couldn't grasp um, and that there would be something out there. And it had a, a, a profound effect on me, not necessarily always a good effect. In fact, I remember my mother saying, oh, I want you to stop reading that book. I don't, you know, it's not making you happy. But, um, but that would be the book that I would nominate because it was... Um, it was a hinge point, I suppose. Um, and, yeah, I, I got into much more um, challenging reading, I suppose, after that, within the, the parameters of, uh, of small country libraries. It's a really interesting choice. Yeah, uh, it, uh, that, I actually got that book from the school library. There was a, I think at that time there was some scheme where US teachers could come out and teach as long as they taught in country schools for, you know, I don't know, a couple of years at a time or something. And one of those teachers bought it for the, for the school library, which is otherwise I, I wouldn't have blundered across it. It would be so interesting to track down that naughty teacher and find out <laughs> where he is now. 
<laughs> Somewhere in the wilds of Nevada, corrupting other youth. <laughs> Um, what are the kind of things you look for in a book now? Like what gets you right into a book? I think that as time goes on, I'm becoming a more grudging reader. <laughs> I wish that I was a, I wish that I was a happier reader, but I'm a grumpier reader. I've done the maths on, I, I, I just keep a list of, of the books that I read. And so I've, I've got a pretty good idea of how many books I read each year. And I've got, you know, an assumption of how much longer I might live. And so I might have maybe 1,500 books left if I'm lucky, somewhere between one and 2,000 books. And so I just, I won't stay with a book past page three anymore if it's just, yeah. So <laughs> so I'm, I'm more and more a grumpy reader. What am I looking for? Um, uh, something that I will uh, admit when uh, we are going to talk about the top 10 is that uh, as of about maybe 10, 15 years ago, except for incredibly rare exceptions, I won't read anything that is not written in English. So I won't read a book in translation. Um, uh, and I know that that <laughs> cuts me off from a huge amount of human experience and a huge amount of amazing literature. But I know myself, I just get too antsy reading books in translation. I, I want to know not just what the author is saying, but I want to know exactly how they are saying it. I, I, because I, I think that's one thing that really interests me as a reader is I really, really want to know how writers are saying the things they want to say. and and. And so it's it's words in a sentence, you know. It's 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 that I'm much more interested in that than I am in grand conceits or plot or anything like that. It's um, I'm not a I'm not a poetry guy, um, and I don't know why I'm not, but I'm not. <laughs> it's but it's words in prose sentences is is what I'm looking for. Yeah. It's interesting at the beginning of Grimish, you kind of make that comment about um, Fernando Pessoa, don't you, about the mistranslation of one of the titles, I think, of his books. He's, he is, um, when I talk about the incredibly rare exception, uh, I was probably thinking of, uh, of him um, and that book um, because I just heard so much about the, the, the heteronyms and, and the, the wildness and, and, and the the breadth and the depth of of of, of that book, um, and so I read it. Uh, but yes, there is <laughs> um, once again it was the same frustration where there were two alternative translations given of something in that book, and they were so uh, wildly divergent. I thought, well, what am I actually reading? Right. Let's move on to the books you're currently reading and the books you're looking forward to. Uh, Yes, well, I say that I'm not a poetry guy, and I'm not, but um, I've just picked up uh, Homecoming by Elfie Shiyosaki, who is a Noongar and Yawaru woman, um, and it's a, I've only just started it, but it's a, a poetic um, engagement with uh, four generations of her family story, and, and it's. Uh, it's it's very interesting. It's very good. 
Um, the book that I am most looking forward to is the next Michelle de Kretzer uh, novel, which um, I think is supposed to be out now or within the next month. Um, and that's one that I'll be uh, marching off to grab with great interest. Uh, however, I was in a bookshop the other day talking to someone who's either the world's best or worst bookseller. But I say the other day, we're in lockdown. It was <laughs> it was a while ago. And he said, stop buying new releases. Why are you always buying new releases and being disappointed? There's so many great books. Go back to the go back to the, the really good ones. So I've been doing a bit more of that, going back and rereading uh, books that I've loved. We'll take a quick break here and come back with Michael's top 10. This week's episode is sponsored by the new Google Home Assist. Hey Google, what's the weather today? Why don't you go out and check for yourself, you fat piece of shit? Now, with 10% more attitude. Fuck off. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time to hear Michael's top 10. So the top 10 has uh, been keeping me up at night, actually, Ben. I didn't know how to do it. Um, I really didn't, mainly because I don't have a top 10. I've got a top one, and that's it. Um, so I'll give you my top one, which is Moby Dick. And I know that's been mentioned on the podcast several times, but uh, it's a book that, to me, there's no other book that, uh, gets anywhere near it. It's a book that's got everything in it. It's in, it's encyclopedic. You know, I can find the most beautiful, beautiful prose in that book, and I can find sections that just make me laugh, and I can find those weird sections where you're becalmed with him, and it's got wisdom, and it's just I I think that that book is everything, and um. Um, so yeah, my top 10 is a top one. It's, it's, it's Moby Dick. Uh, beyond that, however, I, um, I thought I would, the, the next nine books that are significant for different reasons. So the first one is, and unfortunately I can't pronounce the French title, but it's The Outsider by Camus, which, um, I started reading as a teenager and have probably read in most decades since and I, I own three different translations and uh, it meant a lot to me uh, when younger. The next one uh, I had to pick a boxing book or a sports book because I, I read a lot of that sort of stuff and so I chose The Sweet Science which is a collection of pieces by A.J. Liebling um, who uh, was a fantastic journalist. Um, the Unquiet Grave by Palinurus, uh, in actual fact by Cyril Connolly. Um, there was a couple of books that helped me work out how I wanted to write Grimish. Um, and this uh, strange, fragmented, um, allusive book uh, was one that, that helped me a, a bit of a roadmap. Um, uh, it's a, a very curious and interesting piece of work. Uh, another book that 
perhaps no longer means as much to me, but meant a lot when I was younger, is if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, the pilgrimage of psychotherapy patients by Sheldon B. Kopp. Um, he uh, was a psychotherapist. The book is from the early 1970s and it, it suffers a lot from, from that fact. Um, it, it's got a bit of sort of 60s, 70s uh, hippie stuff in it, but he was an, obviously an incredibly interesting uh, Jewish psychotherapist and his book uses narrative so it's it's collecting um stories fables from from different religious traditions and different literary traditions and then uh matching them up with his own experiences as a psychotherapist um and so i put that book in because the importance of story to me i suppose story means more or anecdote means more than than theory as you know i'm not a I'm not someone with a, an academic background. Then a very recent book, which is uh, Days Without End by Sebastian Barry, um, which I've put in because to me, it's just the most exquisite storytelling. Um, yeah, I don't think you can tell a story better from my point of view. I, it's the, the book in, most, in recent years that I, I've most, most loved. Um, Carpenteria by Alexis Wright. Um, it's not a it's not a race, but if it was a race, I think that she would be way out in front of any other writer in Australia in terms of what she's written um, uh, across both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, she's extraordinary um once again as a teenager i read capricornia by xavier herbert and i, I like to think the carpenteria is almost a, a com companion piece uh to that it's um it's set well it's actually set up in the gulf country but it's got that northern australian heat and it's got this enormous breadth and um she is an extraordinary extraordinary writer uh, in any form. I then put in uh, a Harry Cruz book uh, and I chose A Childhood, The Biography of a Place. The reason I chose Harry Cruz is because, um, and it's interesting when I, when I made my top 10, how I tended to go back to my teenage years or my early 20s. So there is this sort of history of tough guy but sensitive American writers who I think a lot of young men can fall in love with. So I was mad for the, for the beats, which I refuse to be embarrassed about now. I read every Kerouac book over and over and over in my teens. I read a lot of Hemingway, especially the short stories in my teens. I wasn't a huge Bukowski fan, but I, I read a bit of that stuff. Um, and I, I think that's formative. It is for some young men, um, and then it's a good thing to move on from it. Um, Harry Cruz is an interesting guy. He, um, he, his best book probably is actually A Feast of Snakes, which is a novel, but that, that book is so cruel. I just couldn't, 
I couldn't have that in my top 10. Um, so uh, a, a childhood is either fictionalised, lightly fictionalised, or perhaps it's straight autobiography about growing up in, in Bacon County, uh, which is down the bottom of Georgia. And a few years ago, I drove hundreds of miles because I wanted to visit Bacon County and try to find the ghost of Harry Cruz, and I couldn't find anything there, which often happens when you chase your, your ghosts. Then uh, Axiomatic by Maria Tamarkin, uh, because I read a lot of essays and she is a Melbourne author uh, who, to me, there's no one, um, uh, except for perhaps Maggie Nelson, um, but there's, there's no one else writing essays in English at the moment who has her intellect and her skills. She's just a, a breathtaking essayist. And then I cheated, uh, and for number 10, I've put in The Vivisector by Patrick White uh, because it was probably, it might have been even the first Patrick White book that I read. And then The Hamilton Case by Michelle de Kretzer, who I, I just see so much of Patrick White in her writing uh, in terms of this subcutaneous way that she gets underneath people and places and both of them have just got this ridiculous, ridiculous talent with, with words and sentences and, and phrase making and, and particularly in her case with, with story and it can seem almost profligate, like they're just... They can just toss it, toss it all out there, like like seeds on the ground, because that they have they have so much literary brilliance just flowing through them. Um, and then I'll very 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 rapidly uh, race through my recent pleasures, which are books uh, that I've read in the last few months that have given me a lot of pleasure. Um, my duck is not your duck uh, by Deborah Eisenberg, which are wonderful short stories. Tell Me Why by Archie Roach, which is uh, the best uh, local uh, autobiography I've read for a long time. It Gets Me Home, This Curving Track, a collection of um, music criticism by Ian Penman. Screw It Burn, which is essays by Leslie Jamison. Blacktop Wasteland, noir book by S.A. Crosby. The Man Who Saw Everything by Deborah Levy, who I love and who was unlucky not to be in the top 10. Sherl, local short stories by the uh, very uh, interesting Wayne Marshall, and 501 Minutes to Christ by Poe Ballantyne, um, who's one of those outsider American authors. Thank you for listening to that very long list, Ben. <laughs> now very, I'd like your thoughts. <laughs> very good long list. Oh, my goodness. I have to go out shopping, I think. <laughs> The only problem with not having bookshops book open now, the internet is still open and it has taken quite a bit of my cash lately. It takes so much cash. Yeah. It's a lovely pleasure, but it's a lot of cash. <laughs> um, with your writing, are you currently working on any, anything? Not really. I'm, I'm, pretty, um, I'm pretty blocked at the moment. Uh, I sort of know what I want to write about which is um grief or a, a specific aspect of of grief um i don't want to repeat grimish I, i'd like to 
I really like to write something sort of um, shiny and seamless, like a you know those <laughs> you know those horrible. <laughs> they're not horrible. You know Jeff Koons, the sculptor, and he's mm. yeah something sort of all all shiny surface like that. Um, uh, but I'm I'm nowhere with it at the moment. Um, I would love to get started, but uh, I'm a really slow. I'm a slow reader, but I'm a much slower writer. Ben, I was wondering if you were at some stage going to tackle Grimm in America. I could, I could. Um, once again, it might feel a little bit like I'm I'm repeating myself. Um, there's heaps more information about his time um, in America. Um, it's remarkable there's never been a, a straight biography of him. Um, he was a singular character, not just in boxing history, but probably in, in sporting history. Um, he must have been a, an unusual man. Yeah, and he doesn't have a very happy life, does he, after he gets back to the States? He doesn't. Um, he uh, he leaves Australia for Paris, where he has a, a single fight. Um, and uh, what an interesting place Paris in 1910 must have been. Um, uh, and then he returns to the US and he's in and out of, uh, of insane asylums and, and spends uh, most of the rest of his life there. He, he doesn't die until the, the 1930s. But um, yes, I, I think the, the head trauma finally takes uh, a fairly bitter toll. Before we wrap it up, um, if people want to get in touch with you or if people want to buy Grimish, which I highly recommend, where can they go and do that? Well, we say uh, uh, all the best independent bookshops, uh, but uh, it can also be found. I mean, if, if you, I've got a website, michaelwinkler.com.au, um, and there is also a uh, website for the book, which is westbournebooks.com.au. Uh, but there's um, some fantastic bookshops around the place that have um, have supported the book from from day one. And certainly, if you uh, if you jump on and Google Grimish, it won't be hard to find. And uh, booksellers, the angels of the retail world, uh, will be happy to post you a copy. And that includes your listeners in different parts of the world. Um, there's been a, a few people uh, in the United States who've shown a lot of interest and a couple of people in uh, in the UK, uh, but always happy to connect with more readers anywhere in the world, Ben. It is such a good book. I really do recommend you go out and get it. That's enormously kind. Well, um, it's been, I, I, I never expected to connect with as many generous readers as, as I have. And that sounds self-effacing, but you write something that's pretty weird. And I mean, the, the first uh, wonderful thing that happened was I sent a copy to uh, J.M. Kutzia, who um, sent me back a, a lovely letter uh, and said nice things about it. And I said, oh, you know, can I quote these nice things? And he said, mm, no, you can quote this. And his quote was, uh, this is the strangest book you are likely to read this year, J.M. Kutzia. So I'll take that from the, the Nobel laureate. <laughs> All right. Well, Michael, that's been it's such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the podcast and thanks for your time, Ben. 
Thanks once again to Michael Winkler. His website is michaelwinkler.com.au. You can also find him on Twitter at Mick Wink. You can find us on Twitter at Beyond Zero Pod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back next week.